0: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Current. Uh, Whether you're joining us online or you're here in person out here on this patio or you're in the family terrace uh, back around behind me, welcome. We're glad you could join us. I'm excited to get back into our series that we kicked off last week. We're calling Reset, and the whole idea behind this series is we're saying that, uh, you know, as we get back to normal or as we kind of get back into the grind or we look to kind of get set in our ways in this new normal, whatever that's going to look like for for each of us, we want to first hit the reset button, if you will, and ask what ought to matter to us most right now? What ought to be our priorities? And what we said is kind of the premise of this series is cultivating character is more important than accomplishing things. Because we can accomplish a lot of wonderful things, but if we don't have good character behind it, well, that could be a recipe for disaster. Or if we aren't accomplishing things like we would want to, it's often good character that helps us get through it or at least helps us bounce back, or whatever the case might be. And so we kicked things off last week looking at what the Bible calls as the fruit of the Spirit, these wonderful character traits that God wants to work into His followers, is working into His followers. Character traits like love, joy, peace, forbearance, gentleness, kindness, and the list goes on. Well, today we're going to kind of go a little bit further in depth and focus in on one of these wonderful character traits, the character trait of joy. And it seems to me that collectively speaking as a society, we could all do with a little bit more joy right now. So we're going to be looking at joy. Uh, This past week, I was out there coaching my son's baseball team. And after the game, one of the other coaches and I got into this kind of intense, like, debriefing session of, like, what can we learn from that game? And what do we need to practice next game? And, what you know, heading into next game, and then what's our strategy? And so we're just kind of in the competitive zone, and I recognize that my son's nine years old, but, you know, you just kind of get into it. So I was just in that zone, and in that midst of that kind of conversation, that intense conversation, one of the other coaches who had been kind of, like, milling around, kind of breaking things down, taking it up so we can get home, said, hey, fellows, look up. And I was kind of jolted at that point because I'm like, you know, intensely in this conversation. He said, look up. And he's pointing out to the outfield. He says, look out there. That's pure joy out there. And in that moment, I was like, dude, we're trying to like debrief the game. I thought you were going to say something about strategy or whatever. He's like... And I looked out there, and there was my son, his son, all three of the coach's sons running out there with faces just like beaming with, with smiles and, and laughter, uh, chasing around and being chased by our little dog <laughs> on this beautiful day. You guys know the week that we just had. It was like 70 degrees with a cool, cool breeze, and the sun was starting to set at the, after the end of the, the game. And, and he's like, look out there, it's pure joy. And I realized on the way home, that night, that that was that coach's way of very wisely helping us not to miss something wonderful happening right around us, right? It was his way of saying, you know, guys, it does matter to strategize for the game. It does matter to, you know, plan and, and get all that figured out for the for the team, but there's this wonderful thing, in, thing happening right now, and don't, don't miss it. And, you know, I realized I, I really appreciated that. It was kind of a help to kind of see something just wonderful happening right there. In an infinitely greater way, the scriptures tell us that we have a wonderful, wonderful joy available to us when we're followers of Jesus, and a joy that's available to us in far worse circumstances, like things like the, the daily grind, or if, if you're a, you know, a coach in the intensity of that moment, or whether you're working and you just got all the to-dos and tasks to go, we, that, a joy that's so wonderful, but also really easily missed and so today I want to kind of focus in on this wonderful character trait that's available to us and consider three things that this text teaches us about this, this joy. So first let me pray and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father, thank you for the gift of joy. Would you please give us your spirit as we look at your word now to understand what it is you have in front of us and for each of us individually. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so three things that this text teaches us about this wonderful joy available to us. Number one, joy is God's intent. We learn from this text that joy is God's intent. Here's Jesus speaking to his disciples right before he's getting ready to go to the cross. This is John chapter 16. He's getting ready to go to the cross. You know, that night he's going to be betrayed and arrested, falsely accused. And, and the next day he will be on the cross. And here he's talking about joy. And we see that he's in, in part helping us understand that joy is a part of God's intent. Look at verse 22. It says, now in your time of grief, Uh, uh, now, excuse me, is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. So joy has always been and always will be God's intent for us. He wants to give you joy. He makes it available to you. It's always been that way. It's always going to be that way. When I was a little kid, my parents had me memorize uh, uh, a number of catechism question and answer phrases. Catechisms, if you're not aware of it, are these like doctrinal uh, bite-sized chunk of statements to help you kind of get a foundation of like theology. It's a wonderful tool, not just for kids, by the way, but also for adults. Uh, But if there's any parents who are interested in this kind of thing, I'd love to share more and share kind of different things that I've benefited from. Uh, But by far and away, probably the most famous catechism is, is the Westminster Shorter Catechism written in the 17th century. And the most famous of the question answer statements is the first question, which is, what is the chief end of man? Answers, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I mean, here were some of the greatest minds, by the way, in the 17th century. They, a lot of them tended to be theologians in that day. I know it's a day era removed from ours in that sense. But they were working on distilling Scripture. They weren't just making this up. Ah, we think it's the chief end of man. It should be this. No, they're looking at Scripture trying to distill all that Scripture says to say, what is the chief end of humankind? And after looking at all the scripture and trying to understand it, put it into just a real compact statement, they said it's really twofold. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The scriptures are all about God's intent for joy. It's always been that way. So if you look at the creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2, these these wonderful texts of God creating the world, separating the the land from the sea, creating vegetation and the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the animals on, on land, declaring it good and then placing us, humankind, into the midst of it and declaring it very good. What was very good? Well, that we get to cultivate it, we get to steward it, and that, frankly, we get to enjoy it. And probably some of the greatest part of that joy is being able to walk around the garden with God face to face and just be with Him and talk about the different things. That's just just a picture of pure joy. Of course, we know how the story goes. You know, we chose Sin, essentially, we chose to live our life apart from him and chose to do things our own way. And as sin entered the world, so too did things like sorrow, pain, grief, uh, suffering, and all the rest of it. In other words, so too uh, uh, did things that could easily rob our joy enter the world. But even there, even there in our broken and fallen state, God's intention is still joy. Look at, we can look at plenty of, of texts in the Bible to this, to this point, but look at Zephaniah 3, verse 17. It says, the Lord takes great delight in you. He will rejoice over you with singing. How does that match up with your picture of God's relationship towards you? I don't know about you, but I can kind of like, when I think of like God's relationship towards me, I, th- I kind of think of him being kind of straight-faced. And I know he loves me, but it's kind of a straight face, like, you know, he loves me. And this text is telling us that God delights in you and me so much that it's like he's singing and dancing over you. That's an incredible thought. Does, that, does your theology hold that? It better. That's what the scriptures say. It's amazing. He delights in you. He to like frolic over you. It's incredible. His intention has always been joy. Of course, the good news is, you know, the gospel is literally good news. That's joy. Every time uh, around, uh, around Christmas, we echo and sing, sing what the angels sing early, early on, that first Christmas time, and songs like, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Joy is just all throughout the scriptures, it's God's, it's always been God's intent, it's always will be his intent. There's just joy, 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 and it's his intent for those who would receive him, right? Those who would believe in him and specifically receive what he did on the cross for them. Uh, where do I get that from the text? Well, that's what Jesus is talking about here in this whole little section with his disciples. Verse 16, which won't be on the screen there for you. He starts this whole thing by saying, in a little while, you'll not see me. Again, towards the, you know, the last few hours of his life, he's getting ready to be arrested and, and tried and sent to the cross. He's gonna be on the cross the very next day. He says, in a little while, you're not gonna see me. He's talking about that. He's like, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be taken from you. But then he says, but then in a little while, you're gonna see me again. Of course, he's referencing there the resurrection. He's talking about how, you know, there's going to be a hard time coming, but you're going to see me again, and then, and then you're going to have joy that will be never taken away from you. God's intent has always been joy. It always will be joy, and the crux of everything, the good news, the center of the good news is God securing that joy for all those who would receive him, put their faith in him. Joy is God's intent. Number two, we see from this text, joy is always present. Joy is always present. Look at verse 20. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Uh, One of the commentators I was reading this week put it this way. I thought it was really helpful. Joy overlaps sorrow. Notice that Jesus is not saying here that he will replace their sorrow with joy. But that he will turn their sorrow into joy. It's not just gonna pluck out the, the sorrow, but he's gonna turn that sorrow into joy. The Bible has a very nuanced understanding and teaching about joy and sorrow. It's very real, it's very helpful and relevant. Because on, on the one hand, the Bible does not teach that if you put your faith in Jesus, you, you follow him, then your life's gonna get easier, it's gonna get more comfortable. In fact, if you look in your Bibles just before the text that we're reading today, so back in chapter 15 and the first part of chapter 16, we're in the latter part of chapter 16 today, leading up to this text that we're looking at today in chronological sequence, just moments before what we're reading today, Jesus says to his disciples, hey, actually on account of me, you're going to be hated in this world. (laughs) In other words, when we put our faith in Jesus, sometimes it's going to actually mean life will be a little bit less easy, less comfortable. It will lead to mistreatment. It will lead to persecution. The Bible doesn't teach that when you put your faith in God, it's just, it's just gonna, sorrow's just gonna go away. But nor does it teach, you know, sorrow's a reality, but the spiritually mature will be able to just push it aside, right? Like, it, it, you will be so much, you will be spiritually mature when you can deal with the hardship in life by just brushing it off. How very unpious of you if you, grieve and mourn things. It doesn't teach that. In in contrast to that, it says, no, no, no. We ought to grieve. We ought to mourn. In fact, it goes even further to say that it is more than appropriate at times to grieve, to mourn. We ought to do these things. And there's plenty of places in the scripture that that teach this. So for instance, the classic book in the Bible that talks about suffering is, of course, the book of Job, the righteous sufferer who just went through some just terrible, terrible tragedy. And after experiencing some terrible loss and some terrible pain, right in the midst of that, his initial response, we're actually told, he got up, tore his robe, and shaved his head. Now, that's not something we do in 21st century Silicon Valley, but we all understand what was going on there. That was just a, uh, an expression of great lament, right? Just grief. He just, he just felt it so much. He was just like, he had to express it in just a real intense sort of way. And it says there that he cried out to God. In the midst of responding to tragedy, he cried out and just was, was as deeply sorrowful as it gets. And then this is what the very next verse says. Listen to this. In all of this, Job did not sin. It's an incredible thought. That's the Bible saying, not only is it okay that he mourned this and that it was hard, but that was good and right. There's times when we need to grieve. We need to be sorrowful. But wait a minute, David. How does this match up with joy? (laughs) Are we talking about joy? Here's what's incredibly important to understand about this the opposite of joy is not sorrow, the opposite of joy is hopelessness. So, in the midst of sorrow, we are sorrowful. We're grieved. In fact, Romans. 12 says we we ought to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. But whenever there's sorrow, there's still always hope that you can glean to. And you know what's awesome? Even if you have trouble gleaning to it, it's still there and it's still coming. That's the wonderful promise of the joy that Jesus makes available to us. He likens it to uh, the birth of a child Jesus is talking about kind of joy and how it overlaps with sorrow and how it's always present. He likens it to the birth of a child. In verse 21, he says, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because her joy that a child is born, uh, she has joy because her child is born into the world. Now, I've only ever experienced this secondhand as a dad, childbirth. So let me just start by saying that. But I could tell you, even from my secondhand experience, it's an incredible like roller coaster of emotional experience, the, the birth of a child. I mean, like the word that comes to mind is it's just surreal. So when I was holding my first, you know, little guy uh, when he was born, uh, two feelings just totally overwhelmed me. One, Cindy is incredible. Like, I don't care how you, how you prepare yourself as a dad going into that, thinking, you know, okay, this is going to be, you know, what it is, and, you know, she's going to do an amazing job. You're still going to come out in awe and respect with, like, her. You're just like, this is incredible. Cindy's incredible. By the way, Mother's Day's coming up, everybody. May 9th, let's honor our mothers, especially looking at you guys, knowing when I sat there. Anyways, okay, you've, you've been warned. Uh, let's, let's honor our, our mothers. I thought Cindy was incredible as I was holding, and of course, obviously, I was also just overwhelmed with this thought of, and this little guy's mine. Like this, man, I'm a dad. After having just been through the whole process of like the labor experience, Cindy being through that process and me being along for the ride, and then holding him, you know, I was just, it's a surreal experience of emotions. But you know what? That first delivery pales in comparison to the second one in terms of the roller coaster of emotions that I felt because our second one, Almost came out before the hospital. We almost didn't get to the hospital in time. Cindy was in labor. We didn't know it at the time, but she was already in labor before we got to the hospital. we were calling our healthcare provider who will remain nameless in this illustration and asking, hey, should we come in? And, And we kept being told that her contractions were too far apart. They were very acute, but they were too far apart. So we weren't supposed to come in. So what Cindy was doing was walking up and down the stairs, trying to get baby Maddie to come out. And in between like walking stairs, she's like in intense labor pain, right? And it's like, we were still calling. And I'll never forget, Our my mother-in-law said, you guys just need to go. And I was like, that sounds about right. So we just went and we're driving to the hospital. And I've never driven so fast in, in my life. It was a little late at night. So there weren't a lot of people out there. And I was, you know how in the movies or shows, the the dad will be driving, the, you know, the mom, and he's just like driving super fast. I never realized, it never occurred to me until that moment, that part of the reason why he's driving so fast is so that you don't have to be the one to deliver this thing. I'm like, I need to find someone else to deliver this baby because this is freaking me out. Just tons of emotion. Then when we got there, I double parked in the the red zone of the, you know, the hospital, how often will you just leave your car in the middle of the hospital, like, red, anyways, left it there, found a wheelchair, because Cindy couldn't walk at this point, Re- wheeled her up to the maternity ward, three stories up, whatever, got in there, and the nurses were super, like, casual about everything, like, Cindy's, like, you know, in labor, and I'm just over here, like, you know, hey, can we get a room, and the nurses were, like, oh, yeah, we'll get you a room, welcome, and it was a light night, they're, like, there should be a room open up there, we'll get it separate, I'm like, guys, can we, can we please get a room? Like we're, it seems like we need to get into the room. Like, yeah, we'll get you in there. Like we're getting the team. They're, they're coming. They're going to get us set up for you. And eventually at one point, one of the nurses casually asked, hey, just, just by way, just by way of understanding, like what number kid is this of yours? And we're like, this is our second. And at that, everybody was like, oh, no, like, and they started getting, it was like red alert. And I haven't, like, confirmed this with my medical friends, but I get the sense that they realized we knew what we were talking about at that point. (laughs) Like, we're not, like, first time around, you know, not knowing what we're talking about. They're like, and so, anyways, they started moving. We had Maddie within eight minutes of getting to the hospital. And the vast majority of those eight minutes were the dallying of getting us into the room. The nurse putting the IV into Cindy's arm literally leapt and caught Maddie. The doctor never made it. And I went from emotion after emotion after emotion to to joy. I'm gonna be real with you. I was not too happy about that process. You know, I just you know, I wanted to see Cindy being cared for and she wasn't receiving that. And I, I, was, I was, I'll be real, I was, I, was, I was quite angry. And I was just like, what? and then the next moment, I'm holding my little baby girl. And you better believe I made some mental notes. I was gonna share some feedback. But in that moment, I was just overwhelmed, overcome by joy. Because Cindy was okay, Maddie was okay. And it was just joy. I don't know about you, but it seems for me that enduring hardship becomes a little bit easier when I know things are going to be okay, when I know things are going to work out in the end. And that's the wonderful promise here Jesus is saying. It's, saying it's like childbirth. It's, it's going to be hard. There's going to be a lot of things that are hard. But in the end, there's going to be a joy that's coming that so overwhelms and overcomes that. It's not to dis, you know, discredit or say that that sorrow is meaningless. In fact, it's turned into joy. It's all the sweeter in some senses, because of that. Uh, this is a wonderful promise that, that Jesus is making. And so I would just say, if you are in a place where you're experiencing a lot of sorrow right now, you're just, you've got a lot of pain that you're holding right now, uh, take heart as best you can. Know that the, the scriptures aren't teaching you to just like put, cast it aside and you know, turn that frown upside down. Not at all. In fact, God wants you to know that he meets you in that place and if anything, grieves alongside you. And we're called to do that as brothers and sisters in the church for one another. So take heart. And even if you're struggling with taking heart, if that's you, know that it is still true. This joy is available to you and it's going to come. It's a wonderful promise. I love Psalm 30 verse five that says it this way. Weeping may tarry for the night but joy comes in the morning. So joy is God's intent. Joy is always present. And finally, joy will never be taken away. Uh, look at verse 22. Now is your time of grief, Jesus said, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. This is, of course, the best news of all. The fact that G- because Jesus has already accomplished everything, <laughs> because he's already done the work, when we put our faith in him, there's nothing that can take away this joy that he has prepared for us. In fact, I don't know how to put this any better than the apostle Paul did when he wrote to the church in Rome. This is from Romans chapter 8 that I think summarizes so, so well what we're talking about. He says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There it is. The wonderful promise here is nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate us from his intended joy because of what Jesus has accomplished, because of what he has done, which will be made complete when our Lord and Savior returns. This joy will never be taken away because it's not dependent on us or anything apart from what Jesus has already done. It's wonderful news, and it's secure. So we've been talking about all these wonderful things about joy, Uh, These mind-boggling promises and scriptural truths that just, man, in my study this week just just meant a lot. I hope it's encouraging to you. But to me, the most incredible thing of all of this, maybe, is the context in which Jesus is saying it. Because remember, Jesus here is talking in chapter 16 of, of John's account right before he's going to the cross, literally hours before he would be arrested. And he knows this is coming. He'd been predicting it. He knows it's coming. He knows he's going to be crucified the very next day. In other words, we have his precious last words. And what is his chief concern with these precious last words? Comforting his disciples. Girding them up for what was ahead. Which is incredible. Jesus was getting ready not only to undergo the torture of crucifixion, but bear the weight of the sin of the world spiritually on his body. And his chief concern in this moment was his disciples, understanding that they have available to them joy. That's incredible. How could he do this? Well, Jesus didn't just talk about joy. He lived and literally died joy. My favorite text just about in the scriptures is Hebrews 12 that gives us the motivation for Jesus as he went to the cross. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus endured the cross with joy. Again, facing crucifixion and the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders, he did it with joy. Does that mean it was easy for him and that there wasn't really any pain? No. In the Garden of Gethsemane, it was so much. Even for the Son of God, he said, let this cup pass from me. Is there any other way? Nevertheless, Father, your will be done, not mine. It was infinitely worse than anything you or I face. And yet, he did it with joy. How can that be? Well, Jesus understood that because of his pain, his loss, his suffering, it would bring us joy. Jesus went to the cross with joy to give us joy, to secure it for us. And therefore, we can know truly and trust fully that joy is God's intent, joy is always present, and joy is something that will never be taken away. It's incredible. One practical takeaway of a thought for you as we conclude and as the band begins to make their way back forward, uh, and this comes to you by way of current staff. This last week before staff meeting, as a, as a way of doing a devotional together, before we got into the more logistical side of the meeting, I asked everybody, I, I reread our text from last week, the fruit of the spirit, the wonderful character traits there, love, joy, peace, forbearance, gentleness, all, all of them, and I just say, hey, just as a point of reflection and sharing Uh, you know, what, which of these character traits has been most like impressed upon you? What do you feel like of these traits God has been working in you the most? And two of our staff members said joy. And I was like, that's cool. I wanted to hear what they had to share. The first said, yeah, God's been really working joy into me over these last years. And he said, in fact, that's, that's been something that's been new for me is to consider how, it takes a wh- how it's taken a while in my life. If you remember last week, we talked about the fruit of the Spirit being fruit. It doesn't just happen right away. It takes time. Have you ever considered the fact that joy might take time to cultivate within us and, and grow and grow increasingly? That's what he said he experienced because his temperament growing up was one of Whenever he looked at things, he'd always kind of see what was wrong with it. Or if things were good, you know, how things might sour. Is that any of you? I think a lot of us kind of have that tendency, especially in the engineering type Silicon Valley that we're in. Just everything like, oh, no, how is it going to not necessarily work out for good? But then he saw over time in living life that God always showed up and took care of him provided, protected, whatever the case may be. And not necessarily in the way he would have thought or scripted it himself, but God showed up. And so God could be trusted. But he said, what was interesting is while God was helping me learn to trust him more, he was also building my joy. Because I realized I didn't have to look at life through the lens of, oh no, what might not go right? Because in doing so, it was robbing my joy. And I was so encouraging to hear that. And then one of our other staff members shared that joy has been something that God's been working in her heart. And she phrased it like this. She said, you know, for me, it's always been easy to understand kind of that there's joy at the macro level. But at the micro level, it's been harder to see the joy. And what she meant by that was, you know, kind of in the day-to-day activity and hustle and responsibility, all the tasks, like, that's where there's, you know, it's hard to kind of see the joy in it. There's a lot of stress and, oh, no, how are things going to work out? And she said, I realized that basically the macro and micro are actually connected. And so what I felt like the Lord was showing me is that I could look and see the joy in the micro, in the day-to-day, in the stress. And I realized that a lot of these things that were hard or I was trying to work out actually had a lot of joy in them already, available to me, right where I was. So that would be the practical takeaway I would just encourage you to think about is to ask, how can you see the joy around you? How can you choose to look at the joy? And again, for those of you who are not feeling that, maybe you're experiencing a lot of sorrow, Uh, just know that God meets you in your pain, in your grief. He doesn't want you just to kind of push it away, brush it aside. He wants to meet you in that space. And we want to be here for you in that space as best we can. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the gift of joy. Thank you so much that joy has always been your intent and it will always be your intent that we might live in it and live from it. Father, I want to pray especially for those who are sorrowful right now, grieving. Would you especially draw them uh, close to you in this time? Would you comfort them? Would you help us as a church come alongside each other in the ministry of, of mourning together, even as we also ought to rejoice together as is appropriate? And Father, most of all, thank you for Jesus and how he, for the joy set before him, endured the cross to secure joy for us forever with you. We pray this in his name.